Plus, the podcast about linguistic discrimination. I'm Carrie Gillen. And I'm Megan Figueroa. How you doing there, Carrie? Uh, better today. Yesterday was rough. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm pretty convinced that I have COVID, even though I have not been tested, because I'm not sick enough to get tested. Yeah. And I don't want to walk around and, like, infect other people unless I, like, absolutely have to go to the hospital, you know? Right. Yeah. Um. So, I was... It's been pretty mild, uh, but then yesterday I just... You and I had like, had this awesome conversation with uh, two guests. It's you know going to be like the, in six weeks probably, mm-hmm. uh, and it was an amazing conversation. But then afterwards, I and I, I had lunch, and then I just crashed, and I got much sicker. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like you exert yourself, and then there you go. And again. all I was and exerting myself was just like well, sure, yeah, conversation. <laughs> like it was just oh man, and it was just depressed me. Yeah, I know it. I, I have heard that a lot of people just, they describe not being able to do any sort of task because it's just too much. And I'm like, oof. I mean, that kind of sounds like the flu, but in a way that the people are describing it, it's just like, it sounds like nothing I've never, or nothing I've ever experienced. Yeah. So for me, for me, whatever this is, it is not the flu. Yeah. Because yeah. all it did was at first was just attack my lungs. I felt like they were on fire. Yeah. And then it was just more like tight. And I have some fatigue, but not like flu fatigue. It's just, I don't know. It's very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> In better news, we have an email. Yay. So from, let's see, I think it's Selem. So, hi, big fan of the podcast. I was actually planning to send a message just last week to ask if you had any plans to do an episode about names. So I was really excited when I saw the title of the newest episode. So by the way, we got this email a while ago and I meant to read it in the last episode and just plum forgot. So that's why it's a little bit delayed. Um, there's something, there are something I've always been interested in and I wanted to share some things about my name parentheses, S parentheses, <laughs> in case you found it interesting. I'm Chinese-Canadian, Cantonese and Hakka specifically, and me- like many others, I grew up with a quote-unquote Western name that I used in everyday life, and Chinese ones that I used with my family. My name is pronounced super differently in Mandarin, Cantonese, and Hakka. I'm not even going to try because it involves tones, and I really suck at tones. Um, but anyway, so there's three different pronunciations. I'd been thinking about ditching the Western name for a while, especially since coming out as agender. Since it's very gendered and my Chinese name is gender neutral, I was hesitant because I didn't know which Chinese name to use and I wasn't really used to hearing non-Chinese speakers pronounce any of them. It's a bit silly, but seeing Hassan Minaj correct everyone's pronunciation of his name and seeing people uh, uh, reacting, I think, positively to that gave me a confidence boost. And I've been using my Cantonese name full time for most of the last year. People have been pretty good about pronouncing it, although it took me a while to get used to hearing it without the tones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're not good at uh, at tones. Most yeah. most of us, most of us who didn't grow up worse. Yeah, with yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. If you don't know, especially like each each tonal language is different too, right? Yep. So even if you speak a tonal language, it's you're still gonna have to learn a whole new system. However, if you don't have, grow up with it at all, it's really hard um <laughs> so uh, uh, uh i went back and forth with the spelling between s-e-e and s-i for the first syllable and l-a-m and l-u-m for the second but i think i've ultimately settled on s-i-l-u-m although i've only been using the spelling for a couple months so i'll let you know if i change it oh <laughs> it's fun i love it yeah 
Oh my gosh. I feel so happy that someone would share that with us. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Thank you so much. There's a lot more, but I think that's like the gist of it. So yeah, yeah. that's really great. And um, we need to talk to people who are um, speakers of um, any of the Chinese languages. Yeah. Um, Selim mentions, for example, that people often haven't heard of Hakka before, which is true. Like most people haven't. Yeah. Well, I only have because I'm a linguist. Right. And I haven't at all. And I'm a linguist. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm also from an area with a lot more like... I don't know if this person is from uh, Vancouver area, but like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people from China in, in the Vancouver area. So yeah, you, you do encounter more things, but they mention a language that I have never heard of before. Uh, Teochew? I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. So yeah, there's lots of, lots of Chinese languages and we'd love to talk about talk. them. <laughs> yes. I want to talk to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> there's too many things. <laughs> uh, consider this your invitation if people want to reach out because um, mm-hmm. there are so many areas that we have not yet um, touched <laughs> at yes. all. Yes. So, and again, another reason why I feel so happy that they would share that with us because, yeah, learned a few things and then I get to hear something very personal about a listener that, yeah, yeah. awesome. And that name episode was fun, so. It was it's really good to great. it's good to to think back onto it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so speaking of names. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I know. Um, I mean I I hate to to say it out loud to give it any sort of I know, but you have to say it out loud to address it. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. Um, but so um Chinese virus. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Um, words matter. <laughs> My favorite thing is that he's like, well, we call it Lyme disease. How many people know that Lyme is a place? Yeah, I didn't know that. Although I knew Lyme wasn't spelled like limes that you eat. So yeah, but, but still. I've never really looked into why it's L-Y-M-E. I'm sure I, I'm certain about a decade ago, I found out that it, there was a town called Lyme. Right. And then I probably forgot because that's how little, you know, that matters. And Ebola also is named after a location. But note, it's not like an entire country in either of these cases, right? It's not U.S. disease. It's not, I don't know, which part of Africa. I don't remember. Right. Uh, Sierra Leone disease or something. You know, like, it's it's not an entire country. It's just one location. Which is maybe still problematic. I don't know. But we don't have the same kind of, like, racial associations, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So... No, Trump, you're wrong. Yeah, and and any person that wasn't just a raging racist would see what was happening. You know, uh, there there are literal hate crimes, physical hate crimes, like uh, verbal, all of these hate crimes that are being committed against people that that others perceive to be Chinese. You know, it's they're not. You know, I'm sure they're not even very discriminatory on this. No, basically any East Asian or someone of East Asian descent. That's all, like, they don't, yeah, they can't, they don't know what a Chinese person looks like versus... Right, exactly. Japanese person versus Korean. So any person that actually cared would step it back, but we all know he doesn't. Um, He has stopped, shockingly. He did stop. Did he? Yes. He has stopped calling it the Chinese virus. I don't know why. Huh. I think maybe, so he said something like, oh, it's not okay to hurt pe- Asian people, or something like that. And he, 
Ever since then, he hasn't used it. I'm pretty sure. Unless he's reintroduced it. But he definitely stopped. Yeah. Well, who knows why. But the damage has been done because all of his little <laughs> minions supporters are calling it Chinese virus. And that's not okay. No, and I, it's I, I not don't okay. Know why, why anyone <laughs> would, would feel like that's okay. Because they're racist. I mean, yeah, it's not yeah. even a question. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's I mean, as bad as that is, there's actually something that's even worse, in my opinion. What? And some people are calling it the Kung Flu. Oh, God. Yeah. It's so I, gross, it makes my skin crawl. I and, haven't heard that. Well, I haven't actually heard it. I've only read it. Right. But it's true. definitely it's definitely on Twitter. Uh, although, less so recently. But, like, around the time Trump was saying Chinese virus all the time, that was coming up a lot. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. people are people are gross. People are gross. <laughs> um words matter uh that's racist <laughs> yeah and we already have a name for it covid19 or sars cov 2 yeah <laughs> it's just such a mouthful covid is better in my opinion yeah. yes this is don't obviously who are who among our listeners are going to be calling it the chinese virus nobody so i don't no, know i what know <laughs> I know. We're just we're just rage venting. Uh, make sure to call people out if you do see it. It's just yeah. it's fucking racist. It's it's gross. It implies that somehow like some people are more susceptible or, you know, like there's so many implications in calling it the Chinese virus that are so blaming. Just, it's basically yeah. blaming Chinese yeah. all of Chinese people for a virus that comes from bats. Like nobody got it on purpose no one spread it on purpose like it's just a thing that happens because we we live in proximity to animals and sometimes animal viruses jump to humans and sometimes they they mutate and then go human to human it's nobody's fault yeah no it's definitely a blaming thing it's uh yeah yeah anyway yes yes (laughs) please uh, let's take a break from COVID-19 for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Got a very special episode today. I talked with doctors Jonathan Rosa and Nelson Flores. It was an amazing chat. Yeah, it was pretty fun. And I was like, oh, I wasn't in this conversation because you guys were going to talk about Latinx. And then you didn't talk about it. I, I know. Like, I could have been part of this conversation. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was good. <laughs> I thought we were going to get, you know, yeah. But... Yes, you you would have enjoyed being there, I'm sure. So I'm sorry yeah, about that. That's okay. It's all right. Yeah. Um. And uh, we I ended up. It was very long, so I ended up cutting out a, a significant portion, which we are going to put in our bonus episode this week. Yes. Month. And if you so. want to get access to that, and you don't already have access, then uh, you can join us at Patreon.com/slash/VocalFriesPod at the five dollar level. And um, we forgot to say it at the end, so don't be an asshole. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that is true. Definitely. Definitely do not be an asshole. (laughs) Need to satisfy a hungry mind? Every week, Your Brain on Facts brings you science. Why does mint feel cold? History. King Charles II of Spain was so inbred, his family didn't bother educating him. Music. 
Many hit songs and even entire albums were written for revenge. Technology. The first video game was made on an oscilloscope in 1958. And every other topic under the sun. Look for Your Brain on Facts on your favorite podcast app or at yourbrainonfacts.com. Like this show and want to make your own? Let me tell you about Anchor. It's free and they have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never heard before. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We have um, Dr. Nelson Flores, who is an associate professor of educational linguistics. And we got a title change over here. We have Dr. Jonathan Rosa, who is now an associate professor, because um, you were assistant last time we chatted. So that's exciting. Yes, I was. I was <laughs> recently promoted. I mean, now technically, as to whether right. the promotion takes place in a couple okay. of months, you know, right, but so maybe by the time the episode airs. But yeah, right. it's more or less official. Okay. Um, and Nelson's at Penn at Penn and um, Jonathan is over at Stanford, but you're on sabbatical in Chicago right now, right? I was in Chicago. Now I am traveling for conferences and other things. So I'm actually here in the multilingual bastion of Miami, the fraught, let's say, multilingual sort of space of Miami. This, the theme of this almost could be misconceptions because both of y'all are talking. That means there's two of you. I think a lot of people didn't know there were two <laughs> two of you. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people think that either you're one person, which is what I've seen on the internet, <laughs> confusing y'all. Um, and you said married or also related you've gotten to? Yeah, I don't think people know what to make of us. And I think part of it is that we both have flower and last names. Um, and so it's people forget, people get the Flores and the Rosa confused. So I've gotten Nelson Rosa. I know that Jonathan has gotten Jonathan Flores. Um but I don't think people know what to make of us sometimes because, of course, we're very close. We clearly have a lot of love for each other, but we're also queer. And so I think people are kind of like there must be like some type of like marriage or something. Um, but just to clarify, um, we're not married. Um, <laughs> Could it just be a marriage of, of, of I ideas? I mean, we're academically love? married, right? I suppose, yeah. <laughs> but like not married in the ways, in the heteronormative ways that people oftentimes mean it. Let me say one thing about Nelson's and my presumed interchangeability, or, or perhaps a couple of things about it. In one sense, I think this is a very common phenomenon that happens with marginalized populations or people who are marked in particular ways based on race gender and sexuality especially there's this sense that you're all the same and you all could be a spokesperson for whatever set of ideas i guess if i'm being generous then you know i would say oh well maybe because there are so few of us or because we've been positioned as the spokespeople for particular kinds of stances or ideas that we get equated with one another my much less generous 
take on this is that it demonstrates the ways that we get recruited to enact or inhabit these tokenized positions where essentially the kinds of contributions that we could make are already predetermined. And the question is, which of us is needed to make that contribution in on which day at which time, this sort of thing. And so I think it's it's a very a very troublesome situation and so you know it's something that i and it happens with a, a whole range of colleagues um so where where we get equated with one another and the sense is just that we we all could be one another any distinctive contributions we might might make and that has concrete kinds of consequences in one's you know professional life but also in terms of political broader political kinds of struggles um professionally you know, when so much of what we're up to is, ba- or the assessment of what we're up to is based on whether you've made a unique contribution and you're equated with someone else constantly, then that can be tricky. But on a much, I don't want to frame academics as the most marginalized or something like that, or I don't want to say that the goal then is to secure our individual, the individuality of our contributions. What's more politically that I'm interested in the ways that our, our contributions to the world or the kinds of struggles in which we could engage are really narrowly defined and constrained and that this equation of us or interchangeability is a reflection of that. I'm not even in y'all's field and um, because I've kind of got a little bit of a platform now speaking about these things, but I'm speaking about them personally, so I don't study it in the way that you do, that I'm often um, included now when people at you on Twitter. So they'll put me now too. Um, and and I've noticed, I, I also, I love to talk about these things when it's right for it and if I'm like emotionally available for it. Um, but, but I noticed that that y'all might not always be emotionally available for that. And you get dragged into it a lot dragged. I say drag, but a lot of times it might feel like that, right? I mean, I think Twitter in particular is an interesting platform. I mean, I clearly, I love Twitter. I mean, it's connected me to people like you, Megan, who I didn't know before I was on Twitter. And it's connected me to a lot of um, interesting people. And I've learned a lot off of Twitter. Um, But at the same time, I think sometimes people take Twitter way more serious than maybe it's intended to be. And there's this kind of, um, like, I just write a tweet that's kind of like an off the cuff tweet. And then like, people are like, like, send me 10 10 references to what you just said so that I can read up on it. Um, And it's like, well, you know, that's, I'm not in class right now. I'm just like writing some tweets. If you want to learn more about it, you can certainly like Google and like do some of that work for yourself. But I don't know if um, almost coming from a sense of entitlement in terms of like, um, you need to like, teach me this because your tweet made me uncomfortable and so you need to further clarify what you mean um, so that maybe I can feel a little less uncomfortable with what you just said Um, and I don't think that that's always coming from a bad place I think people sometimes feel uncomfortable and they want to know more Um, I just don't know if like Twitter is actually like the best venue for doing that like maybe they need to kind of like do some of the work for themselves rather than expecting people on Twitter to kind of do extra labor and and kind of getting them to really understand things that maybe they really need to do the work for on their own. How does that play out for you in your job as a professor or as an academic that travels to conferences? Do Are you asked to do a lot of that emotional labor for people when it comes to Latinx issues? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there are, it requires us to do a lot of uh, careful kind of strategic engagement where you say, 
Yeah, there are a lot of there are invitations that come that ask you to represent a certain perspective or recruit you、mm-hmm. to represent a, a certain perspective, and there are also efforts to sort of、uh, invite you to participate in mentoring activities that are based on a, a shared, a presumed shared kind of experience. And so there are some of these efforts that feel really substantive and meaningful, where you say, "Okay, wait, I have there's something that I have to say here that I think contributes to this dialogue or contributes to this bigger project." There are other moments when you kind of say, "Oh, they just want someone else to read the script. They just need another person to read the same script." And so, am I just going to be the, that person today? And I'll never forget when one of my mentors, Melissa Harris Perry, who used to have her show on. MSNBC、yeah. when she was uh, uh, leaving MSNBC based on some you know I think fraught relationships there I'll never forget when she was very public about saying that she was not going to be anyone's little brown bobblehead and she she was not going to be this ornamental piece and really an object and I think that that's the the part that's deeply concerning in some situations where you become an object and it's it, it, and you don't have anything to say、uh, you know the 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 on demand part of it is is also tricky because we want to be I think we want to make meaningful contributions and we want to engage with publics, but there's a a kind of、uh, accessibility issue that could be complex to navigate as well, where you become you're on the clock or on call, or you're expected to be the go to person on such and such issue, and I found that. That would has happened to me in certain situations as well, where the expectation is that anything related to any language and identity issue, I should just speak to casually. And you know, I I, I worry I, in some situations, some of my ideas about these topics, and this is why I appreciate Nelson's comments about Twitter. And some of us sometimes I just want to be irreverent. Sometimes I just want to make、mm-hmm. a joke about language. I mean, I said after the Joe Biden. Kind of、uh, landslide victory on Super Tuesday. That one of the things that's most interesting to me about his success there is it demonstrates how irrelevant language is in some situations. Because from many people's perspectives, he's been more or less incoherent in a range of situations, and yet his incoherence has not prevented his political ascendance. And so, you know, in in some cases, I just want to be flippant about language. In other moments, I I've done a tremendous amount of research, and I want to be careful, and I want to weigh in on on.、Uh, A debate in a, a nuanced way, but you know, I, I think that the on-call part of things、um, sort of invites people to offer their opinion constantly, in as though they had developed or carefully developed a serious perspective. And in many situations, people haven't developed that kind of a, a, a careful perspective, and and yet are asked to be the expert on something. Do you feel like? There's different work going into it when you're being flippant because I feel like sometimes I'll say something on Twitter or even、um, around colleagues, and I feel like it takes less emotional toll on me than if I really wanted to get into something.、Um, that's why I feel like I, I really appreciate Twitter because I'm like when I when I put something out there, I feel like I'm not actually having to. Do as much emotional work. I feel like I get something quick out of there, and then maybe someone will learn something. But it always becomes more emotional. <laughs>、um, so, like, I tried to. I, I had another.、Uh, had a tweet the other day that said. Oh, so this gets into the idea of semilingualism, which I wish, which I want to talk to you all about. I I said that that's not a thing. You can't have have kids that go to school, end up in school, and not have. Or have low skill in both languages, and that's the idea of sibilingualism.、Um, and I want to get into it with you. And someone was like, 
retweeted me as like, I'd like to know what my language acquisition colleagues think. And I'm like, I'm a fucking language acquisition expert. Um, uh, so I, I really sometimes wonder, oh, are they seeing my last name? And all of a sudden I'm not taking this seriously because I'm too emotional about this. Like, I really honestly feel that sometimes. So, um, do you have that happen as well? I have been, uh, accused of being a bully. Um, which is so funny. <laughs> hey, you're so kind, but yes. <laughs> um, but I think... A lot of that stems from precisely my resistance to um, feel like I need to do the emotional labor of making few people feel comfortable about what I'm saying. Um, and in particular, as a Latino scholar doing work in bilingual education, um, I'm particularly resistant to the idea that I need to make white people feel comfortable doing work in bilingual education. Um, and so I put my work out there. I let it speak for itself. I certainly have never targeted anyone individually and personally insulted them, which is what bullying actually is, right? Bullying actually has an actual meaning. Um, and as a gay person, I've experienced it personally as a gay person. So I know what bullying is. And I know that what I'm doing, which is dismantle, working to dismantle white supremacy and how we think about issues of bilingualism is not bullying anybody. Um, and so I, I do think that there are these strong emotional reactions um, that people have to my work both in both ways, right? I've also had people um, tell me that it gave it's given them a vocabulary for making sense of things that they kind of always knew um, didn't make any sense um, and kind of had visceral reactions against, but really didn't have a vocabulary for thinking about. So I mean, I think that in the end, I think what it boils down to is that all researchers have emotional investment in the work that we do. Um, it's that people who are positioned and people who are coming from marginalized positions, oftentimes that emotional investment is marked in ways that it's not marked for white researchers. But they also have an emotional investment oftentimes in whiteness and, and the objectivity that's oftentimes subscribed, subscribed to whiteness. Um, and when that's called into question, and the ways that Jonathan and I have called into question in our work, um, that oftentimes leads to strong visceral reactions. Um, oftentimes people feel personally attacked um, when it's really not a personal attack at all. Let's ignore my sloppy definition. Will you tell me, Nelson, what semilingualism is? Well, we can trace the discourses of semilingualism back to the origins of European colonialism, right? And that's something that Jonathan and I wrote about in our 2017 piece, um, which is essentially um, one of the primary mechanisms for dehumanizing um, indigenous populations, African populations, was by calling into question their language practices and, and kind of suggesting that their language practices were somehow illegitimate or subhuman. Um, now, the concept of semilingualism itself emerges within the context of um, the Bilingual Education Act in the United States. Well, actually, it actually emerged originally in Scandinavia, um, but I'll focus on the work in the United States, which is, which is the, the term itself emerges in Scandinavia. Um, but within the context of the Bilingual Education Act, which was passed in 1968, um, there were accountability metrics that had to be um, used to show that these programs were being successful, right? And one of the things that they had to do was assess students to see if they were Spanish dominant 
or not, because if they were not Spanish dominant, then they wouldn't be eligible for most of these programs. And some of these students um, were assessed, and their assessment suggested that they were not proficient in either English or Spanish. Um, and the discourse that was developed by scholars at the time to make sense of that was to say that they were semilingual, um, that they didn't have full competency in any language. Um, that was quickly um, critiqued by other scholars who said you really can't describe people that way and that's not like, <laughs> uh, that's not really a thing. Um, and so then the discourse shifted to the discussion of basic interpersonal communication skills or social language and cognitive academic language proficiency or academic language. And so the, the discourse shifted towards they have BICS or social language, but they don't have CALP or academic language. Um, and you can trace directly that discourse. I'm not making a leap there. The scholars who originally used the term semilingualism shifted towards a discussion of social and academic language. Um, and so whenever we talk about social and academic language today, that's really the legacy that we've inherited, a legacy of semilingualism, of suggesting that there's something illegitimate about the language practices of racialized bilingual students. I just had a friend tell me that the latest TESOL conference, a major theme was semilingualism. As a good thing or as a bad thing? I asked I asked him, I said, were they debunking it? Although even though we still have to debunk it in 2020, but he said, no, I don't think so. He said that his friend was not happy. Uh, se semilingualism, I mean, I think actually my experience with this conversation ties together the previous dialogue that we were just having about, you know, the ways that we're positioned as ideological or overly emotionally invested in certain topics, which then is presumed to distort our opinions on these topics. So I was writing an article a few years ago that Nelson and I have been in conversation with about ideas related to semilingualism. And I, I was writing about what I called ideologies of languagelessness that just frame certain populations as deficient in any language that they use. And, and, and it's not just certain populations, it's racialized populations. And so I think, for example, Nelson invoked kind of the ways that the discourse of semilingualism emerged in Scandinavia, but part of what's distinctive about how it gets enacted in the European context versus in the, the Americas and elsewhere is that it's framed in the Americas as a highly racialized concept that maps onto a population across generations and is presumed to be somehow inherent to a particular populations in ways that really articulate alongside race or, or in concert with race. And so this notion for me of an ideology of languagelessness is reflected in the ways that semilingualism is taken up in the United States, reflected in the ways that particular populations are framed as non-nons in the United States or non-verbal in, so in English and their so-called native language. Uh, linguistic isolation is a category that was used by the census for about 30 years to designate certain households as lacking language altogether. But that happens to real populations too. That's really offensive because it's like they're deaf children that are actually experiencing language isolation and yet this is where they're using that. So it's it's problematic in every direction. There are yeah. people who are really being denied access to language learning and meaningful opportunities, cultural opportunities that are mislabeled because of that. This these sorts of stereotypes about isolation, but also isolation in terms of the ways that it, it articulates in relation to policy, it's messed up because it's intended to provide, uh, to serve as a tool for ensuring compliance with the Voting Rights Act, to, to 
make sure that you have resources and languages other than English. So you need to designate the number of households within a community that require those those resources. But in order to access those resources in languages other than English, you have to be designated as isolated rather than designated as using languages in addition to English. And so, you know, I, I've found that this, these sorts of stereotypes map across a whole range of institutional contexts. And in everyday discourse, you hear people say, so-and-so doesn't speak English well, they don't speak Spanish well. Or, you know, in, in a school where I was working, the principal who had a doctorate in education and was a Puerto Rican woman, one teacher said she speaks English like one of our ninth graders. And from what I understand, her Spanish isn't that good either. And so when I was writing about this, I said, these are these ideologies of languagelessness that map onto people regardless of their credentials, regardless of what might seem to be their empirical linguistic practices. And the, the initial response to that article when I tried to publish it uh, from reviewers was that I was being ideological, that I was imposing an analysis onto these situations and imposing this idea, this attribution of deficiency that wasn't really there. But for me, I was observing connections across all of these spaces. And I think that for scholars who are attentive to particular patterns of marginalization, that we're drawing connections that aren't observable to other, um, aren't observable from other perspectives. And so we look like conspiracy theorists, or we look as though we're overgeneralizing or overapplying or overreaching in our analyses when in fact i think you know part of what is so troublesome about normative uh, social scientific and scientific research more generally is that the kind of empiricism that it embraces recruits you to accept the world as it is and to naturalize that world and then to observe things in such a way that that allows us to reproduce that world at the same time that we purport to just be um, noticing things that are happening within it. And so uh, for me, drawing connections across these patterns is central to my critique of, of the way that, that this world has come to be structured. And I found that a lot of reviewers are unwilling or, or not inclined to engage in that kind of a critique. I had a moment of realization here too that that's happening to me because I spent a lot of time in psychology because I did study psycholinguistics and do language development. And it is fraught <laughs> with really disgusting views of of communities that they've marginalized and these are marginalized speakers and they're always looking for disorder in some way and i have a background too in speech and hearing so like there are legitimate concerns to be had about uh, children that do have language disorder right but that's not what's happening here these are neurotypical hearing children that people are um, looking for disorder at like every turn and they're finding it because it's easy to find it when you're looking like you'll find evidence for anything that you're looking for right um and so every time i say something about this i do feel like people some people think i'm a conspiracy theorist and they're saying like when i say talk to your children however you want and however you feel comfortable with people think that that's they're like why would you you know like we have all this evidence that suggests that some input is just not as good um they really want that to live on. Well, and I think that connects back to the emotional investment in whiteness as objectivity. Um, and I think that that really throws people off when we refuse to allow whiteness to be framed as objective. It's like if your position is that these ways are better input because they're more normative and they're more aligned with whiteness, then say that. Um, and I would be okay with you. We would disagree. But at yeah. least you're being honest with what your perspective is, what your ideological position is. 
And so I always say, I own my ideological position. I own where I'm coming from, and I own my locus of enunciation. Um, and I just push other scholars to do the same thing. So if you're using discourses that come from the specter of semilingualism, then just own that ideological position and say what you're essentially saying is that everyone should speak like a normative white person. Um, and that's not progressive, and that's not liberal. Um, so don't kind of pretend that you're progressive or liberal if you're actually promoting an agenda that supports white supremacy. Um, but at least be don't be disingenuous um, and try to purport that what you're saying is some type of objective representation rather than an ideological one. Right. Yeah. Because exactly what you're what they're saying when they say, no, there is a right way to speak to children is there is a there is a white way to speak to children, because that's what we know about of all of these studies on language development. I, I mean, I don't know the exact number, but it's in the 90% of, you know, it's been done on white middle class suburban babies. Um, and yeah, that's one way of, of talking to children, but it's not the only way. And we are continually investing in speaking like white middle class kid, uh, parents when we say that these studies are basically how, how it should be for everyone. Um, but people really don't like to hear that. You're right. I, I'm realizing then this now... Um, sometimes I still feel very naive because I'm like, oh, well, they'll just hear it once and then that'll be enough. You know, like people will stop and reflect and that's not what's happening. And I'm always a little bit surprised because I'm hoping that, you know, it just takes one moment of reflection and then you can start kind of like dismantling. But we're really invested in these things and these ideas. The challenge is that we continue to frame things as empirical questions that are really ideological questions. Um, and so you can keep trying to disprove an ideology. Um, but if it's an ideology, it's kind of by definition something that you can't really disprove because people have really deeply ingrained investment in those beliefs. Um, and so at this point, we're not really having an empirical question, right? I think empirically, we have the data that shows that all communities have complex, rich language practices that they engage in, um, but people don't believe it because they don't want to believe it, right? Because they have deep investment in these ideas that certain communities have more rich language practices than other communities. Then at that point, you can't, you can't disprove white supremacy, right? Um, um, if people are invested in white supremacy, then they're going to be invested in white supremacy. And that's kind of the challenge that I think we're trying to highlight in our work is what do we do in that context? And how do we intervene in that context? And part of, I think, what's particularly challenging about this ideology is the way that it is associated with a kind of liberal benevolence, where the people who are perpetuating it are deeply invested in staking a claim to helping. They see themselves as really participating in projects that are progressive or even projects that are aimed towards social justice, this kind of thing. They really want to understand themselves as addressing the marginalized. And I think when, when Nelson was talking about having been called a bully in the past or this kind of thing, I think part of why some people are so off-put is the, even the remote suggestion that linguists, sociolinguists, linguistic anthropologists, applied linguists, that psycholinguists, that we have, in fact, contributed to the problem. And so many scholars want to understand themselves as the people who are solving problems. But I think, you know, one of the things Nelson and I, that, that brings us together in our work is our deep sort of suspicion that many of the scholarly labels and categories and approaches have, in fact, been 
have emerged from the very sorts of systems of power that, you know, we're trying to critique here. And so, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't think we're, we're, I, I think we have a long way to go in terms of trying to unsettle some of these uh, assumptions. And I, I, I encounter this constantly. Um, the sense that uh, Anacelia Zendaya always says, a mentor of mine always says, you know, the, the, the helping hand strikes again. And in so many of these situations, when we're talking about bilingualism and multilingualism and standard language and academic language, just educational language learning, it's the helping hand strikes again. It's we want to help the kids. We want to help their families use more quality language with them. We want to help them to become proficient users of such and such language. And I think when we keep pushing and we always push, what's your theory of change? What What is it that changes? So these families use language in this way. So this school institutionalizes language in this way to change these behaviors. And then what happens? Then people have access to a different world. Then, then the structure of the economy transforms, then stable housing and living wages and political right. representation, then that emerges from language use? Or are we facing a fundamentally different kind of challenge? And should our critiques, should our efforts towards promoting language learning and our, our engagement with language be oriented towards those bigger challenges? Or should they be narrowly focused on changing people's language practices in their homes, in classrooms, really changing the behaviors of the marginalized? And, and I think th- this is what so much of what Nelson and I have been trying to call into question, just fundamentally rethinking the project of educational language learning. Well, and we're like in the epicenter of funding for things like the closing the word gap. And I'm like, if we spent that money on, you know, money towards like universal housing or some sort of universal basic income, it would go way further than spending money on fucking trying to close the so-called word gap. Um, but that's where people want to spend the money. That's where funding agencies are, are funneling the money because you're right. They, they feel like they're, you know, they're the helping hand that's going to fix the, the marginalized. Um, but another kind of buzzword, uh, term that I wanted to bring up, uh, bilingual brain jonathan what what is a bilingual brain it's it's interesting um i was i was mentioning to um to both of you that i i sometimes you know make flippant comments about these sorts of catchphrases and you know the this notion of the bilingual brain like the language gap or word gap i've i've often had a a, a knee-jerk reaction to it where i felt as though it were locating language within a cognitive system rather than within a historical and cultural kind of system. And to be clear, I'm really interested in the cognitive dimensions of language use. That's not the primary focus of my research, but it's something that I've certainly studied and and something that I I respect research in this area. However, I I just, uh, you know, I sometimes when I talk about it, I, I'm more concerned with the slogans, with the ways that it's turned into this commodified kind of project. And as soon as it becomes a slogan, then it it very quickly we see which populations will benefit from that kind of a project of turning something into a commodity that you could achieve somehow. And and I just don't if this is a justice project. If this is a pro- if if language learning is uh, 
is if, if part of what we're up to is trying to address marginalization, then these notions of a bilingual brain, I don't know how well, how far that will get us. Now, you know, I was saying to you all that um, a colleague recently was pushing me on this to say, look, you know, there are different ways that that kind of notion has been developed within, say, psycholinguistics or within psychology of language versus, say, within neurolinguistics and neurolinguists who understand themselves to be more attuned to some of these cultural and historical issues and and are not trying to to promote the the sort of narrow view of what bilingualism is i i will say i i continue to be concerned regardless of you know the the meaningful work that people might be doing in these areas i i continue to be concerned about the ways that bilingualism is defined and the ways that languages are separated from one another in order to reproduce this notion of bilingualism i wonder what languages even count as legitimate in this research so when you're when you're seeking claims to a bilingual brain which languages are involved is are they languages like uh chatino that my close colleague emiliana cruz studies in in uh southern in oaxaca and in, in guatemala are, are they you know which languages are we staking these claims to, to um cognitive advancement based on. So that's one piece of it. But yeah, just this this notion of who is a legitimate bilingual such that we could study their brain. It frankly reminds me if in my most, perhaps not my most critical take on it, but it reminds me of some of these genetic ancestry tests, which purport to find race in your genes, but in fact have to presume that race already lives in your genes in order to then find it there. And if you understand race to be something historically constructed, then it doesn't live in your genes. Similarly, you have to presume that bilingualism lives primarily in the brain in order to then measure it, measure what it's doing there. And I think bilingualism lives between people, not within people. So the, my, my neurolinguistics colleagues were saying, you know, the colleague who was pushing me on this was sort of saying, no, I understand brain to be across people, not just within an, an individual, and that, you know, from the perspective of psychology, often it's on that individual basis. And so I think that there are interesting debates to have. I continue to be concerned about the slogan, though. Of course, I agree with everything Jonathan is saying, but this whole idea of a, a bilingual brain is still, from my opinion, coming from a monolingual perspective in the sense that most of the world is bi or multilingual. So why are we like exceptionalizing the quote bilingual brain instead of the quote monolingual brain to begin with, right? Like why aren't we saying what are the unique cognitive um, traits of monolingual people who are the minority of the population? Maybe a bilingual brain is just a brain and it's the monolingual brain that's actually like this weird thing that we need to study. And of course, I don't actually believe that, but I think that some of the discourse exceptionalizing bilingualism, when we reverse it and really think about, well, if we describe monolingualism in that way, that would be really strange. And yet, bilingual describes more of the world's population than monolingual. Um, so like, what exactly are we doing there? And of course, and, and kind of connecting to something Jonathan was saying before, like the bilingual brain discourse, I would trace its origins to the classic Peel and Lampert study that found cognitive advantages to bilingualism. And in that study, they threw out more than half of the sample because they weren't appropriately monolingual or bilingual, right? So from there on, we already inherited this idea of bilingualism that's coming from a very normative idea of what bilingualism even is to begin with. Um, and then I would add to that, whenever we ask the question about whether bilingualism has cognitive advantages, it always opens up the question of whether there are disadvantages. Um, and it's a slippery slope, right? If we're willing to ask the question, if there are 
are advantages, then it opens up the question of whether there are disadvantages. And I think that we shouldn't do that. We should just say bilingualism is. It just is, right? There, most of the world is bilingual, multilingual. It's just a nat- it's just kind of what human societies are. Um, there are no advantages or disadvantages. It just is. Um, and then we start from that perspective, and I think that would allow us to ask different questions about cognitive processes of language learning and whatnot. This is where we got ourselves into trouble because all of a sudden, Pete and, and all of these polls, they, um, people are saying that he, they think he's the smartest. And I really believe that it's tied to his so-called multilingualism. And 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 then you're right that it's so ideological because Spanish in, in Pete's brain is is beautiful and amazing. But in, in, in these communities, you know, like in my father is somehow like a deficit and they beat it out of him when he starts school. Um, so it's just... It was really frustrating to see that play out on, on you know, like the national stage. But I'm like, that's what we're doing as a, a lot of academics are doing. We're perpetuating this by asking these these bilingual brain questions or what are the cognitive advantages? And it always just seems to steer toward, okay, there are cognitive advantages for people like Pete. <laughs> but all of a sudden, it's a disorder or deficit when it's it's someone like my dad. Well, and then this is why, like, whenever people ask me to speak on my analysis of multilingualism and politicians, the first question that they want to ask me is how good their Spanish is. And I always say that's actually not the question I'm interested in, because how good someone's Spanish is, is of, is connected to the social status of that person, right? And whenever we begin to kind of sort people into good Spanish speakers versus bad Spanish speakers, it's always the most marginalized that are going to be most victimized and remedia, kind of receive remediation for it. So I actually never, even though people insist that I do this all the time, I one, never evaluate the Spanish of white politicians, and two, never say that they should never speak Spanish. Because one, I don't have the power to tell them that they can't. They can do whatever they want. They're white. That's kind of the definition of whiteness in the U.S. Um, but I don't think that that type of language policing is productive anyway. I'm more interested in how bilingualism is talked about differently depending on the race and social status position of people. Um, and that's my primary focus in kind of analyzing these things. And yeah, Mayor P, people are like, wow, he speaks like a gajillion languages. Isn't he so smart? And I'm like, well, actually, you could go to many places in the world where people speak those gajillion languages, right? And they're not positioned as smart in the same way. Part of what's so striking to me about some of these popular discussions of of language, whether we're talking about Mayor Pete or if you're talking about Donald Trump. So if you're talking about someone whose speech is seen as more sophisticated or more cognitively advanced than multilingual, or you're talking about someone whose language use from a liberal perspective is often derided as somehow non-grammatical or unintelligent, this kind of thing, that in each of those cases, it seems to me, again, as Nelson was saying, less a it seemed the the discussions of language seem to miss the point in many situations. It's less about language and more about a whole range of other issues that we're not paying attention to. So with this, this these discussions about um, particular politicians, non Latinx politicians' use of Spanish in the United States often have le- nothing to do with what they're actually saying in Spanish or communicating in Spanish. And it's more about the idea of Spanish that positions them somehow as a particular kind of person. And as Nelson was saying, yeah, this is 
this is uh, you know we we get roped into playing uh, playing the game when we start assessing how good their Spanish is and suggesting that no they should improve right. their Spanish. That's not the point. The point right. is to ask why it is that based on their position this ends up being advantageous for them or seems to become framed as a benefit. And with similarly with Donald Trump, I think a lot of the discussions about his language use miss the point fundamentally when people are saying oh we need a more respectable intelligent person in office. Well, you know, that's you're, you're totally missing the point. Donald Trump is a television show host and a celebrity, and he's very effective at those roles. And his performance of being, a, you know, being a sort of a buffoon in some situations or being a clown in some situations is very politically strategic, just like George W. Bush was very politically strategic in his dissimulation in certain ways. In his folksiness. In his folksiness. who comes from an incredibly wealthy family who has access to a range of educational opportunities and then plays off of this persona, an imagined folksy persona. So I think we miss the point sometimes when we critique or celebrate language use. uh, We're not paying attention to the performance that's happening. Um, And we should be thinking about what makes those performances possible, what makes them valuable, and what makes them strategically useful. and, And perhaps we should be attacking that system rather than just focusing narrowly on language use. I think that's something that you were kind of talking about, the, the idea of Spanish and kind of liberal politicians is an interesting one because oftentimes, like, I think Pete did this and like Joe Kennedy and Tim Kaine, um, where they use Spanish to directly speak to dreamers, which is interesting because, of course, the whole narrative around dreamers is that they grew up in this country and so their English is just fine. And, of course, not all dreamers are Latinx and wouldn't be expected to be Spanish-speaking anyway. So he's they're, they're not actually directly addressing dreamers there, right? They're, they're directly addressing kind of white liberals who feel good about themselves because the politician is bilingual, right? It's not actually serving the kind of what would seem to be the kind of explicit what they're saying explicitly is not actually what they're communicating, right? Um, because they actually don't need to communicate in Spanish with dreamers, and it actually doesn't make sense because a lot of dreamers wouldn't understand what they were saying anyway. Um, it's just to kind of show, look at me, I speak Spanish. And that's where I, I kind of say, well, you don't get a cookie, right? And people took my kind right. of like, you don't yeah. get a cookie as to be like, white people shouldn't speak Spanish. And it's like, well, no. If they're speaking to the Spanish language media and are trying to actually engage a Spanish-speaking audience, that's great. But to randomly do it in a speech of people who are not Spanish-speaking um, to a, to an audience that you're imagining as an audience of Spanish speakers who most of them probably – or many of them are probably not Spanish speakers um, – then that, that, that's disingenuous, right? That's more you want the props for being bilingual rather than you're using your bilingualism to actually communicate with a marginalized community who may actually benefit from knowing more about your policy positions. Well, I really appreciate both of you being here. I mean, I know it's hard for you to see each other, I'm sure. I, I heard that you never Skyped together. Yeah, we never Skyped together. And I said, <laughs> I said we, we text a lot. And I said, we, we on occasion, we'll talk on the phone. If we set it up in advance, we put it on our calendars. But we do audio. We're, I said, we're old millennials. We don't do, like, the <laughs> FaceTime stuff. <laughs> oh, last thing, something else that confused people confuse us. People think I'm an anthropologist because Jonathan is an anthropologist. But I, oh. just to clear the record, I am not an anthropologist, and I don't really have any particular investment in contributing to the field of anthropology, though I find some of the frameworks helpful. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> I mean, I get, but I get interpolated as an anthropologist a lot now, and that's only because of the collaborations I've done with Jonathan. <laughs> 
Or the fact that they just think you are Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that that's, that's, but it's like, I mean, I'm not hating on anthropology. It's just no. not my training. It's not my discipline. And I don't have any particular vested interest in that disciplinary perspective and its contributions. We see you, Nelson. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gone. I haven't gone to the dark side of linguistic anthropology. We see you, Nelson. <laughs> Next time we chat in a year from now, you're gonna be like, Dyson. I'm gonna be like Boaz. Be yes, Boaz is my godfather. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you again. The Vocal Fries podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen, for Halftone Audio. Theme music by Nick Granham. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at VocalFriesPod. You can email us at VocalFriesPod at gmail.com, and our website is VocalFriesPod.com.